It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Saturday, December 16th, 2023. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. How much does a governor's endorsement of a presidential candidate matter? especially when it appears to be an endorsement of someone going for second place. You know, if you endorse someone and write an op-ed and walk away, no one's really going to pay attention to that. But, you know, I believe in the endorsement. I believe very strongly in Nikki Haley. I know she can win in New Hampshire. I'm Chad Pergram. A big week in Congress as the House moves forward with an impeachment inquiry for President Biden. The president's son defies a House subpoena and a deal on the border crisis looms large. And it's hard to strike a deal when the two sides, or at least the White House, is unwilling to put something on paper. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. This past week, a Republican presidential candidate got an endorsement that she painted as a big boost. Former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley thanked New Hampshire's Governor Chris Sununu. I think all of Manchester is here. Good job. The question is, did they come for you or did they come for me? You're in charge. (laughs) It's a great night in New Hampshire. I mean, it doesn't get any better than this to go and get endorsed by the live free or die governor is about as rock solid of an endorsement as we could hope for. Former President Trump, who's dominating in Republican primary polling, including in the first-to-vote states of Iowa and New Hampshire, said in a social media post, Sununu could have run for Senate and won, but he wanted to run for president and, without announcing, did. Sadly, he got no traction, went back to being governor. Now he is unelectable in his own state and can back Haley, who has a non-chance of winning. Haley disagrees with that and said at the Manchester Town Hall after Sununu's endorsement. So we'll have three or four people go into Iowa, a couple drop, we'll have two or three come into New Hampshire, but guess what's next? Then you'll see me and Trump go head to head in my home state of South Carolina and we'll take it. We will finish this. The obvious question is how? If so many Republican primary voters are on the Trump train, how much does an endorsement from a popular governor really help? I think you need it both. Um, You know, if you endorse someone and write an op-ed and walk away, no one's really going to pay attention to that. Chris Sununu is the Republican governor of New Hampshire. You know, I believe in the endorsement. I believe very strongly in Nikki Haley. I know she can win in New Hampshire. This isn't just, yeah, we we hope she does okay and comes in second or third. She can win this thing. Um, So, again, we want to be realistic with the expectations, but knowing that if we put the effort on the ground, it really can work. And most voters in New Hampshire won't decide what they're doing for a while. So when, uh, you know, maybe the first week in January, last week in December, folks will really get around to it. So we're going to put every effort we can behind it. Um, I, I wish I could tell you, yeah, Sununu's behind her, you know, 40 percent jump in the poll. That's just not the way it works. We, uh-huh. we know that. But I do believe we understand how to do a ground game. We understand how to get voters, how to turn them out. And uh, we're going to put every effort on it because I think it's important for the country to hit that reset button and say, hey, we have a binary choice here. It isn't 13 candidates. It's Trump versus Haley uh, with Haley winning New Hampshire. Now you go into our home state of South Carolina and it really is a one on one race. And finally, Trump will actually get on the debate stage. He'll actually answer questions. I mean, right now. Not only does he not do debates, he does rallies and walks away. 
flies in, flies out. No questions, no answers. So um, it's a very different Donald Trump than eight years ago. I hope folks realize that. And I think that's where folks on the ground in New Hampshire are hoping for a great opportunity to hit the reset button on the presidential primary. It doesn't look like, though, if you look at the polls, that that most Republicans agree with you, right? So expound on that for me. What do you make of the uphill climb here, if you believe the polling, for anyone, including Nikki Haley, with these poll numbers? Yeah, so my look, poll numbers up to now are probably exactly what I would expect. The fact that in New Hampshire, the former president in his own party only has 44 percent of the vote. But guys, that actually isn't good if you think about it that way, right? So if it's a one-on-one race, and that's our goal to get it to a one-on-one race, uh, if you're not polling above 50, last time I did the math says you lose. So that's really the key here, getting it to a one-on-one. There's three or four choices right now, and so he'll hold his 40%, 50%. Everyone else will split the rest as that continues to consolidate, which it has, with, a, with Nikki doing, I think she's going to do very well in Iowa, really, really well in New Hampshire. Now it becomes that one-on-one race. So I, I'm, no one should be surprised too much by the polls to date, knowing that everything is going to move in the next 60 days. Chris Christie is in third place after Nikki Haley in your state. And he said after or around when you endorsed her that he's not going anywhere. Would it make a big difference if he got out? Oh, there's and, no doubt. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt that. It, and does it, the time but does the timing matter? Like if he gets if he says, OK, after Iowa, fine. Um, is that too late? Oh, no, no, no. A lot of people won't make up their minds till, till after Iowa in, in, in the last week. They won't really look at Iowa, but that's just when people, a lot of folks just decide to get engaged late. So Chris is great, uh, great friend. Ron is, is a great governor, great friend. Um, so it was a hard decision, and I know they're disappointed. But at the end of the day, there's no doubt Nikki has the best chance to consolidate. She has the best resume. She's really, uh, she's the best option for president of the United States, not just to win, but to really Why? give in the background. No one has her international experience, right? I mean, no one can touch that in, in terms of where she is and her understanding of these very complicated issues in Israel, Ukraine, all this, whatever the next thing might be, Iran, North Korea. She was an incredibly successful governor. She wasn't just governor of South Carolina. She turned the whole state around, right? She cut unemployment from 11 to 4%. She created tens of thousands of jobs. I mean, she knows how to build an economy. And most importantly, she puts people first, not, hey, this is my policy, do as I say. She understands that if you let individuals, communities, states have more control and more say over their own um, uh, position and and where they want to be, that's how the founding fathers designed it. And that's where you get the best results. And that's what everybody wants. Nobody feels like they're being heard now. But to have a president in the White House that has kind of that almost like a customer service type approach to things. That's exciting to folks. And that's why even before I got involved, her numbers are skyrocketing. Let's talk about your state in particular while I have you. You know, this year we saw New Hampshire put up one heck of a fight to remain the country's first in the nation primary. And we won't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that held for Republicans, Democrats. I I want what what is the status of New Hampshire among Democrats? Have you been stripped of your delegates? Is that formalized Um, yet? No, we're still the first in the nation primary. There's no um, and the Democrats and the Republicans will both go on January 23rd. We'll count the votes. We'll be the first primary in the country. I don't know if the Democrat Party has stripped them of their delegate. Nobody really cares about that uh, because this is where the conversation is. Joe Biden isn't even on the ballot in New Hampshire, and he really screwed up 
because he tried to take it. He blew it. We won. Um, you know, we've had the First Nation primary for 100 years because we have the highest voter turnout. We have the most energetic um, opportunities. Um, you know, you have such a diverse uh, selection of folks coming out to vote, not just having a couple select party leaders pick the winners for you. That's not the way you do it in New Hampshire. And so, yes, we're holding on to it. Biden's a bit embarrassed, obviously, so he's off the ballot, which means all these undeclared voters that typically could vote in both primaries, uh, they're all going to vote on the New Hampshire primary now. That's an amazing opportunity. Those folks are always massively underpolled and undercounted. So they're going to come out in droves primarily, I think, for Nikki Haley. I believe that very strongly. Uh, so there's a huge opportunity with the record voter turnout we're likely to have on the Republican side for Haley to pick up a lot of those undeclareds. She's a strong next generation conservative. I mean, she's the Tea Party conservative from South Carolina. So you know, conservatives love that. She she understands the issues better than anybody. She's really the full package. And folks now that are engaging and saying, wow, wait, I guess we should start paying attention to this thing because the Republicans have narrowed it down. They're realizing, well, that's it. That's the answer. This is where we're going to consolidate. And, you know, Chris may stay in the race. He may get out of the race. Who knows? Um, obviously, a lot of his voters would, would likely consolidate around Nikki as well, as was DeSantis. Is it? But so there's um, if there's consolidation mm-hmm. there, uh, now you've got a real one-on-one race. It's not easy. It has to be earned. Every vote has to be earned. But there is a real path there to, again, telling the rest of the country that don't hold, hold your horses. Don't take this thing for granted. It's not a fait accompli mm-hmm. for Trump. Uh, we're going to have a real one-on-one race here for the other 48 states. Back to the Democrats, though. You just said no one cares really about being stripped of delegates. But what do you then make of this worry, these these write-in campaigns? People are saying that there, there is some concern that they do need to write Biden's name in the ballot. Well, I think that's more so Biden doesn't get embarrassed. I don't think he cares about the, the 14 delegates or whatever it is that they, I don't know how the Democrat delegate process works exactly. It's kind of a, a fixed game. If Go ask Bernie Sanders how the delegate process worked with their super delegates and all that nonsense. But hmm. no, it's not about the delegates. I think Biden just knows that now that uh, he lost the battle to take the first nation primary from us. Uh Oh, he's not on the ballot. And boy, wouldn't it be embarrassing if the sitting president couldn't win over his own party in the first primary state. So, you know, I think it's more of a, of a saving face effort than anything. I'm reading that the former head of the democratic party in New Hampshire told the New York times that the worry is, okay, Biden will be the obvious nominee, but maybe, maybe the, they're looking at the margin. Like what if Dean, you know, Phillips gets over 10% sure. or Marion Williamson? It, it, t- tell me, because you know, New Hampshire history, are people paying attention to the margin of victory? Does, is, is that some sort of uh, sign or omen? No, I don't know if they pay attention to New Hampshire, <laughs> but after New Hampshire, they might, they might potentially look at that. And again, they just don't want to be embarrassed. They want Biden to be the fait accompli. There's not even a question about it. Um, right. I, you know, look, I'm still not a huge believer Biden is the ultimate is ultimately on the ballot. I think he'll collect the delegates. Obviously, I think he's going to win um, in most of the states and all that. He'll collect the delegates. But I'm not convinced that uh, all of his problems don't keep exi- you know, getting worse and worse, as they have for three years now. It's just going to keep getting worse. So six months from now, we're sitting, they're going to be sitting at the Democrat National uh, Convention. Biden is not going to be um, knocking it out of the park. And I'm being nice about that. And there's a possibility Biden says, look, I'm not going to do this you know, he, but look, Joe Biden has a choice. He can be the, he can be the Democrat. He can be the guy that the Democrats say, thank you for getting rid of Trump. Or he can be the guy that, that the Democrats say, I can't believe you stayed too long and you let Trump back in. Uh, 
So that's his legacy right there, and he has a choice to make on it. Mm. Um, nobody thinks he's got four or five strong years left in him. I mean, he doesn't have one le- strong year left in him. So I just think there's so much pressure on the Democrat Party to move on from Biden, um, and given their history with uh, finding a way to always you know, get the candidate they want, I think there'll be a, a path there for them. You've said you're not running for another term as governor. If New Hampshire picks a Democratic governor next then in four years, could that governor say, you know what, we're going to let bygones be bygones. And you know what, DNC, we will go second with Nevada and give no, up our first I, in the nation even, status. Even as bad as the Democrats of New Hampshire are, they're, they're not that dumb. No way. No, they they tried. They didn't make a very good argument, but they, they tried with the Democrat Party. They blew it. It was really our secretary of state and myself that I think really put the pressure on to keep the thing nationally. Um, but no, the Democrats, I, I don't think, are, are that silly as to think that it's OK to give up the first in the nation primary. Well, but the argument we heard for picking South Carolina first, right, was that it's more diverse. If that's the real reason, then do some in New Hampshire, Democrats, actually support that reasoning and say, you no, know, solidarity within the party, putting racial identity first is important. No, because that, that's completely false. So, th- yeah, they can say it's a, mo- a more diverse population, but they're voting. The amount of people that actually vote and participate in the South Carolina primary is so low. I would argue that mm. you actually have a much broader spectrum of individuals that engage in the process, that get out and, and challenge the candidates. It's a much better process. You don't need money and name ID and a couple, uh, a couple kind of big name surrogates as uh, Biden had in South Carolina telling everyone how to vote. How's that diverse? How's that allowing diversity when basically one or two people are telling people who to vote for? We don't do that in New Hampshire. That's the value of the New Hampshire primary. Every candidate has to earn it. Joe Biden didn't earn anything in South Carolina other than you know the endorsement of one or two significant individuals that then drove everybody else to the polls. Where's where's the diversity and the opportunity for the voter, you know, uh, in that? Governor, what's on voters' minds in your state? We know we know parts of your state were hard hit by the opioid crisis, but is it is it the economy right now as it is for everybody, or is there another issue that's unique to the Northeast that you're picking up on right I now? I wouldn't say it's unique to the North, uh, Northeast. I think the, the issue on everyone's mind is they are tired. They're exhausted of drama. They're exhausted of, of Washington, D.C. That doesn't do a thing. Complete lack of trust with everybody in Washington. So the opportunity to not go backwards with someone like Trump or settle for someone like Biden— that, you know, nobody wants that ticket. There's the opportunity to say, look, we're going to go for the next generation of conservative leadership that listens to us that wait, boy, you know, we might not agree with every policy, you know, with Nikki Haley or, or Chris Sununu. That's fine. But I do very well in New Hampshire. I'm pretty popular in New Hampshire, not because everyone agrees with me, because I take the time to listen. We take the time to earn trust. When I make a decision, mm-hmm. I can explain exactly where it's coming from. That's my brand. That's Nikki's brand. Right. That's and that's that gets people excited that we're going to instill some unification in this country just on attitude. Right. On, on culture, on putting America first, on understanding things like civic values and family and all these things that have really gone by the wayside uh, to all of our, our detriment. So I think the, the frustration and drama uh, over with the overall system is there. And that's why I think everyone's going to be excited about moving forward, not not kind of re- reliving with a uh, in the past with Trump, who's just, you know, I'm not a big and I, I know people might think I'm super anti Trump. Yeah, just I really want to ask you before, I, before you go, if, yeah. if 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 Trump wins, because we, we read your piece right when you decided not to run and it was, you know, explaining why you, you don't want Donald Trump to be president again. What's the concrete concern? He's saying, you know, he's going to close the border and drill. Is it the personality and not necessarily it. policy? No, no. Okay, he, but he, but what's your concern moving forward with Trump? Because he he, yeah, he talks the, to the, the game. We agree concern. with his policies. I agree with him. Sixteen twenty. Did he drain the swamp of bureaucracy? No. Did he balance the budget? No. Did he add more fiscal irresponsibility, adding seven trillion to the debt? 
Yes, and I'm a, I'm a fiscal hawk. That, that drives me crazy. Did he secure the border? No. And leadership gets it done no matter what hand they're dealt. I don't know if there's going to be a Republican-driven Congress or Democrat-driven Congress out of Washington next year or, or the Senate. But you better have a leader that knows how to get something done no matter what hand they're dealt. That's Nikki Haley. It's not Donald Trump has proven he can't do it. Donald Trump has proven he's... I, he almost acts like he, he wasn't president before. <laughs> you know, he almost acts like he's the new guy on the block. No, no, no. You had four years. You blew it, right? I mean, so there's, there's a lot of policy there that we can agree with. But implementation, results, accountability, none of that was really there with the last administration. Huge opportunity to go forward and get America unified. New Hampshire Governor Sununu, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, joining me right now is my colleague, congressional correspondent Aisha Hosni. And Aisha, you've been following this debate and this behind-the-scenes negotiation here that we don't know a lot of the details about, trying to get a a border agreement. Uh, Alejandro Mayorkas, the Homeland Security Secretary, he appeared twice here for these closed-door talks on Capitol Hill. Uh, it, It doesn't seem like they're getting any closer, but there's a lot more pressure to move something, which is why the Senate is remaining in session the week before Christmas. That's right, Chad. And you know what? It really depends on who you ask. If you ask the negotiators every time they come out of these meetings and now two meetings with Secretary Mayorkas, they'll tell you that they are making progress. That's what Kirsten Sinema, uh, the independent from Arizona, said to us when she walked out of uh, this meeting with negotiators and the White House staff um, that uh, things are looking good and uh, they might be getting closer to something. However, when you ask someone else, like let's say Lindsey Graham, uh, the Republican from South Carolina, he's pretty frustrated and he has been for the past couple of days because Mm -hmm. his complaint is that there is no legislative text, right? There's nothing on paper yet. And it's hard to strike a deal when the two sides, or at least the White House, is unwilling to put something on paper, he says. So Senate Leader Chuck Schumer, yes, has delayed recess for the Senate, ordering uh, you know, folks to come back to work next week in this sort of last-ditch effort to um, strike a border deal and, and really to pass aid for not only Ukraine, but free up aid for Israel and Taiwan as well. Um, and so we'll see if that happens. At the end of the day, you know, you and I were talking about this. Things could blow up this weekend. Things could go really wrong this weekend. And then perhaps uh, the leader tells folks, you know what, just stay at home. We're not coming back next week. Right. Now, now, that said, he does have a couple of things parliamentarily that he wants to move through here. Uh, these nominations, these military yes. promotions that Tommy Tuberville, the Republican senator from Alabama, had kept on ice for months and months. And so, you know, they're, they're probably going to do that. And that would take a little bit of time to process these. But, you know, it, it struck me and I asked Dick Durbin, the Democratic whip about this, was the, the purpose once they started to break the ice a little bit in these talks here, mm-hmm. was it really just that they didn't lose momentum? And he said yes. And I think that, you know, once you kind of start mm-hmm. to get the ball rolling and the fact that we've seen the appearance of the Homeland Security Secretary here twice uh, was pretty significant. And I think you talked to yeah. Tom Tillis, the Republican senator from North Carolina. And I, I have to say, I loved his quote where he <laughs> said that this was like a Star Trek episode, you know, where, where nothing is figured out and Captain Kirk and Scotty are running around. And in the last five minutes, they saved the galaxy. I don't know if well, we're, we're he quite told- to that point. 
he made an interesting point, too. He actually spoke with our senior producer, Kelly Ferris. We'll give her a big shout out because she is yes. just incredible. Kelly's but, um, he 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 actually had this thought. You know, he's wondering if perhaps the White House is not putting something on paper because they're worried the base is going to come after them. And he said something like, cry me a river. I've been censured 30 times by, you mm-hmm. know, local GOPs and states. And guess what? Bipartisan stuff is really hard. So just step up and do it, he said. Um, and so that's that's really where we're at. The other part of this is, you know, Ben Cardin, um, the chairman of Senate Foreign Relations um, in a pen and pad this week, Chad also said that there are concerns um, across the Senate about what's happening in the House, the politics of the House, because at the end of the day, if they come up with a deal, there's still the question of what happens when you send it over to the House, because you've got this large swath of Republicans on the right, and then a huge group of Democrats on the left, a lot of congressional Hispanic caucus folks who both have a problem with what's happening. You know, the Republicans don't want to talk about Ukraine aid at all. And then these folks on the left don't want to talk about things like asylum reform at all. So you've also got to deal with the politics of the House. And it's hard to do that when Speaker Johnson really hasn't been a part of negotiations, at least publicly, sort of saying that this is uh, an issue for the Senate and the White House to work out. So still a lot of hurdles to pass before we get anything to the president's desk. And right now it's really just all talks. You know, this really struck me as kind of like when they were trying to do the the so-called Inflation Reduction Act a couple of years ago, Mm, which took months and months and months. And just because they're talking at at Christmas time, December, doesn't mean that it's going to get done. But if it's going to get done, it's probably going to be a January, February, March project. You talk about Speaker Johnson. He might not be too hep to this. Uh, In Mm -hmm. fact, there might be a a scenario where, you know, the House goes over his head because you could see the scenario with Israel aid, with Ukraine aid, uh, something we call in the House of Representatives a discharge petition because you could have a a coalition of Democrats and Republicans, you know, more than half the House that could go over the speaker if he doesn't really want to touch this hot potato here because some on the right. Uh, some of the conservative groups, they don't want to touch anything with any form of, uh, of immigration reform or anything on that front. It's, I mean, that's why, uh, you know, they might just go around him. And we don't know if the government's even going to be funded in January and February. Well, that's and what I'm, I was going to say. He already has an issue that's, that's going to hit him right he's as got soon some as they come problems. back. He's got a deadline, two deadlines yeah. that are coming. And it sounds like they're going to have to pass another clean CR, which isn't going to go over well with a lot of folks like Chip Roy, who are just about done with, you know, this, this House, this Republican majority that hasn't, in his eyes, really gotten a whole lot done. Um, you know, they really need to pass a budget, and it just doesn't seem like they can get there. So yeah, uh, exactly. more to come when it comes to Speaker Johnson. So far, though, I, you know, I asked, I talked to Matt Gates as he left um, yes. Thursday. He, he was leaving the House steps as they, you know, recessed. And, and I asked him, you know, is this, are you disappointed in Speaker Johnson? Is this Speaker Johnson's uh, problem? Is it his fault that you guys haven't been able to pass a budget? And he, and he defended him. I mean, and so did Byron Donalds and, and others, um, Tim Burchett, um, you know, really coming to the Speaker's defense. So he it doesn't seem like he has enemies yet. Uh, but we'll see. There's a whole year ahead. <laughs> it, it's interesting to see the, the barnacles, though, that he's starting to collect uh, on yeah. the side of his ship there, uh, because, you know, it might not be enough to push him over the edge. Now, the, the main thing that he has going for him, and we were reminded of this this week, my, the main thing that Mike Johnson has going for him is that, A, he's not Kevin McCarthy. Mm-hmm. Two, he's not Kevin McCarthy. 
three, he's not <laughs> Kevin McCarthy. Uh, I think that's a lot of it because Kevin McCarthy was kind of this controversial figure and we saw his departure, his formal departure from the House of Representatives this week. He gave kind of a valedictory speech on the floor. Mm -hmm. He's still a member until the end of the year here. But, you know, he was part of leadership. And because Kevin McCarthy had been so closely associated with leadership for so long, even though he had raid, raised, you, you know, ATMs worth of money for, you know, Republican congressional candidates around the country. Uh, he had, I spoke of barnacles, a lot of them. That's why, you know, he didn't become speaker in 2015 after John Boehner departed. Uh, he took 15 rounds, the longest uh, speaker election in 164 years back in, back in January here, and then was done in nine months. Uh, so I think that's probably the best thing that Mike Johnson has going for him. He's probably more conservative than Kevin McCarthy, and they just like him better because Kevin McCarthy always kind of had his eyes on the prize to get to that to get to the speakership. He did, but not for a very long time. But uh, so I think that might be why they're willing to give Mike Johnson right. a little more leeway, even if they're unable to produce some of those those results. Right. And, you know, one of the results we got to watch here, Aisha, is mm -hmm. whether or not they're going to impeach the president. Gosh, uh, you the know, biggest I, story of the week. Yeah, exactly. It I really mean, was. I asked, and uh, you, Mike Johnson that this week. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And you were and you were covering that. And, and I thought, you know, such a historic moment there when Hunter Biden at the very last second shows up. Uh, on the Senate side, not the House side, as you will mm -hmm. uh, explain mm -hmm. to our listeners here why that was important. Mm -hmm. And basically it says, look, I'm here. I'm here, Chairman Comer, um, but did not show up for his deposition and instead uh, made some remarks and defended his father and then and then drove away. Talk to me about that day and just how uh, just a little bit nutty it was. It was pretty zany. I had not seen that one on Capitol Hill before. That that one had not been in my TV guide before, um, uh, not in syndication, anything. Uh, so so here's the backstory here. Hunter Biden uh, had been subpoenaed by James Comer, the chairman of the Oversight Committee, for a closed door deposition at 930 this past Wednesday. And the idea was that uh, you show up and testify. James Comer had indicated that he was willing to have a, a, an open hearing later. Well, in late November, Abby Lowell, who was the attorney for Hunter Biden, said, we want an open hearing now. James Comer said, no, no, no. If you look at the at the subpoena, it's for a deposition, 930 Wednesday and said, we'll have an open hearing later. That's how things happened. That's how things unfolded in 2019 with the impeachment investigation of former President Trump. They had closed door depositions then they had open hearings. So he shows up at 930. Everybody is over at the House, uh, the Rayburn House office building. And here comes Hunter Biden about an eighth of a mile away at, at, a, at a location called the Senate Swamp, which uh, it, it, there's nothing <laughs> swampy about it, but it's named after Ro Roger Mudd, the le legendary CBS correspondent, used to do his stand-ups there during the Civil Rights Act uh, filibuster of 1964. The Capitol Police moved him over there, and one day it rained, and so people started to call that the Senate Swamp. And so that's where a lot of press conferences happened. So he didn't want, Hunter Biden did not want to show up on the House side because there is jurisdiction in the House with the Speaker and the House Sergeant Arms saying you are out of compliance with a subpoena. Why aren't you in the room here? That could be an issue. Uh, so he showed up at 930, didn't set foot on anything related to the House, no terra firma in the House, was in the Senate swamp where actually the terra firma might be a little bit uh, firmer legally for Hunter Biden, despite the name, spoke to the press for a couple minutes, got in the van and drove away. Mm -hmm. And so this is where the House of Representatives now might be compelled to say, how about a, um, a contempt of Congress resolution here for Hunter Biden? You're not in compliance with the subpoena. 
they could adopt that, send that to the Biden Justice Department, and then Republicans could turn this around on the Democrats by saying, you prosecuted contempt of Congress for Peter Navarro, the former Trump administration official, Steve Bannon. Uh, why aren't you doing this? Oh, and by the way, this is your son. So that could be a problem here, here too, if he doesn't comply. But I'll tell you, Aisha, that is going to be the big narrative about impeachment as we get through the primaries and deeper into the year. And if they ever actually have a vote to impeach, uh, the one thing I'm looking at here, the reason that they had the votes to initiate the impeachment inquiry, which actually puts them on more firm legal ground right now to, to, to try to enforce a subpoena for Hunter Biden. Note that that vote didn't come until later in the day, the same day that Hunter Biden showed up. Had they done it kind of the other way around, they might have had more compliance from Hunter Biden. But, uh, you know, whether or not they ever have the votes to actually impeach the president, right. let alone the evidence, is going to be a big question because look at some of these vulnerable Republicans from swing districts. I mean, I talked right. a couple of days ago with David Valadeo, a Republican from California who lost a couple of years ago, came back. That's a district that Joe Biden won big time. And a vote to impeach, even if they found the goods, uh, you know, that would be a tough vote to take. And again, you have this shriveling GOP majority. They're down to three well, if votes. You look back in smaller. If you look back in history, it didn't really impact President Clinton, obviously didn't impact President Trump to impeachments. Right. Um, so it is, yeah, it's a, it's a fair question to ask is if it's, if it's really worth it. Um, talk to me about, walk me through the contempt process and walk our listeners through it, because it's just interesting how, uh, you know, Democrats are already saying they're going to oppose it. Leader Jeffries this week said that he, he would obviously vote no if it ever came to the House floor, um, even though, as you know, Democrats used it. Uh, right. When they held uh, in contempt um, former Trump advisors, uh, Dan Scavino right. and Navarro Peter Navarro, and said that to the DOJ, even though the DOJ didn't prosecute. Um, right. So, but walk so me they would the create that process. resolution. Yeah, they would write mm -hmm. that resolution, have a floor vote, uh, again, send it to DOJ, but then it's up to DOJ whether or not to, to act on it. Now, there's something that's called inherent contempt, which back in the late 17th century, early 18th century, um, or, or 1700s and then the early 1800s, I should say, that's when Congress sometimes they would execute this on their own and they might hold you in contempt and physically hold you here at the Capitol or something. And the Congress really hasn't done that since the 1930s. They held a guy, a Commerce Department official who wasn't being compliant with documents in an airmail scandal. And they held him down at the Willard Hotel, which is a rather posh hotel. So he was up at the Willard Hotel for about 10 or 11 days. They don't do that very much anymore. But again, it's the politics. Oh, you're not going to prosecute him. I mean, you know, you've, you know, the Departments of Justice, they, they do make these decisions based on some internal politics, let's face it. I mean, we had a few years ago, this has nothing directly to do with contempt, but we had a criminal referral sent from the House Oversight Committee uh, back in 2008 on Roger Clemens, the baseball star, because they felt that he had lied to them about the steroid investigation that Congress had conducted. And he was then prosecuted and then was exonerated in a court of law here in Washington, D.C. So, you know, this goes both ways, but there's a lot of picking and choosing when it comes to the prosecution, especially on something like contempt of Congress, I should. Right. And they'll keep working as, you know, they're out for the holiday season. I think you'd reported that yes. um, the uh, investigators, oversight investigators, could even uh, call for more depositions and use their new subpoena powers over the course of the holiday break. So more to come on that. Um, uh, 
what else happened? Gosh. Well, so, well we have one other, uh, one, one other thing year. that you and I have been talking about here, just to wrap up here, Aisha, about the now junior senator from Pennsylvania, yes. John Fetterman, who I did an interview with here. And we've been seeing him be a little more active. You know, he was yeah. out earlier this year, just a couple of weeks into his term, uh, suffering from depressions, mental health problems, checked himself into Walter Reed. He has been back in action here on Capitol Hill and making kind of a name for himself and, and talking to reporters and, and, and uh, you know, kind of letting us get to know him a little bit. What have you seen with uh, your I, interactions you know, with Senator I'll say I'll say I think he's had the best year, right? He's had quite a year. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of reporters have been heartened to see him, you know, make all of this progress. I mean, you'll remember early, early on in the year, I mean, he was having a really hard time getting through those hearings mm -hmm. um, and really just even hearing the, or excuse me, just replying to questions was really difficult for him. Um, but now it seems like he's, he's obviously gone through some rehab and therapy and has some help with this new uh, tool which I think you know more about, <laughs> um, that helps him figure out, you know, what someone is saying or asking and then be able to communicate in response um, and just really come around, but also taking it a step further and created some news, you know, when Bob Menendez uh, was charged um, a few weeks ago, uh, he really came out swinging against his, against his own colleague, mm -hmm. um, asking for him to be expelled and calling on his own Democrat colleagues to push push the man out. Um, and he oftentimes says, I'm not a progressive. You know, when he talks about the border and that something has to be done, he says, I'm not a progressive. So it's been really interesting to in watch him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's been really interesting to watch him uh, sort of develop into this uh lawmaker uh, went through the whole thing with his um, appearance you know folks didn't like that he was coming in wearing a, a sweatshirt and shorts and things like that and now I think everyone's just accepted and that's it. what he's wearing now that's what he wears <laughs> yeah. yeah well yeah. Aisha thank you for your time great of reporting course. this week it's always a pleasure to chat with you and and also I wanted to give a, a hat tip here to Kelly Ferris we were talking about Star Trek nice. here and and I think you would agree with me on this about Kelly Ferris I believe that Kelly Ferris could probably captain a starship in Starfleet. She probably it, could. Yeah, she's fabulous. So, so yeah, kudos she'd to know Kelly. everything about every alien species ever. <laughs> and and some members of Congress. That's right. <laughs> there right. you go. It's going to be a really, really fun and interesting year ahead. Looking forward to it. Thank you, Aisha. Tomorrow on the Fox News Rundown from Washington, my colleague Jared Halpern speaks to Jackie Heinrich discussing Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's recent visit to the White House. And Fox News Radio's Kristen Goodwin speaks to Griff Jenkins about the latest look at the crisis on the U.S. southern border. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Chad Pergler, and this is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.